and welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we have a real rock star in the world of ESG, Professor Iona Sianu, an award-winning academic, advisor to multinationals and advisor to investment funds and ESG board members. Professor Ayano is an original in the world of ESG, having focused on sustainability for his entire academic career. His particular specialization is on understanding whether, how, and to what extent business and capital markets can lead us on to a sustainable future. He's also a deep thinker into the wider ecosystem on how politics, academics, and individuals fit into the structures that decide if ESG is going to be embedded as a long-term successful strategy for, again, a sustainable future. An advisor to Merck and DWS and a board member of Earth, Professor Ayanu regularly publishes in top-tier academic journals and has been cited over 8,000 times. He's also a frequent contributor to the Financial Times, Bloomberg, The Guardian, the BBC, Le Monde and De Forbes. Ayanus gave us a fascinating deep dive into multiple areas of the world of sustainability, including reflections on a decade in ESG, the relationship between sustainability and corporate performance, ESG as an investment theme, the problem of greenwashing, the geopolitics of sustainability, and his own reimagination of the future. A charismatic and charming individual with a genuine passion for a subject, it was a conversation that you just won't want to miss. Thanks so much for coming in. Today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to all the important and the fascinating issues we have on the agenda for today. And there are an awful lot of them. It's Indeed. a wide-ranging subject we'll be talking about. But you know, to start, starting at the start, um, ESG, this is your, your, your core area of study, um, has come, become very popular recently. You know, a lot of people, whether you're in uh, the field of uh, finance or marketing or leadership, have been very interested in ESG. But you, from the very beginning... Um, decided this this was your passion, this is what, what you wanted to get into. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your journey to that? What, what really appealed to you? Yeah, absolutely. So I did my PhD at Harvard Business School, and it was a PhD in business economics. And at the time, I graduated with a uh, study that looked at spin-outs. In other words, entrepreneurial ventures that are set up by companies that abandon existing players and set up their own shop. But then I joined London Business School, and as every PhD student, perhaps, you do go through a period of existential sort of uh, um, doubt or questions, I should say. Um, And then you realize, I spent 10 years of schooling, I am in this profession, and uh, you start asking the why questions. Why do I study organizations? Why do I study business? Is this even important? Uh, And that was a question that was bothering me, to be honest with you, for at least three to six months uh, after I joined London Business School, because in some ways I was looking for meaning or purpose in the work that I was doing beyond the academic side of it, the academic validity or the academic intellectual curiosity, if you like. Um, And I I was aware of, uh, in general, the research on corporate social responsibility at the time, as it was called. And in in reading more about this topic, I realized that um, not only is it an an important topic in and of itself, in, in other words, the role of business and society more broadly, but it personally gave me more of a robust meaning uh, or purpose, if you like, in my academic career and, and why I would want to stick in this profession. So that's how it started. It was a more of an existential wondering about uh, purpose. And you're absolutely right to point out that back then, uh, although there were scholars across the world that were dealing with these issues, if you were 
to distinguish between more mainstream, more peripheral issues within academia, it was certainly more on the periphery rather than the mainstream. And of course, things have dramatically changed since then. Um, In 2012, you wrote an article in The Guardian, uh, which essentially said we should be very supportive of all firms and their their, their, their ESG um, missions and their ESG proclamations. But over recent days, uh, I think it's fair to say you've been perhaps more frustrated, you've been more um, more kind of outspoken on failures, on, on lacking yes. of, of progress. Um, how would you rate the last 10 years of, of progress from there, from the kind of sustainability from, uh, from corporates? Yeah, the original intention of the 2012 piece that you referred to was, I wanted to highlight that we cannot treat companies like people. They're not like friends where, oh, they betrayed us because they said one thing and they did another. The intention there was to highlight that Businesses are communities of people. They have different people. They have different functions. There are different departments. So different departments might be doing different things. So it's not the, if they say something and they don't do it, it's not necessarily betrayal as in the interpersonal betrayal, but rather is the complexity of the organizational environment that might prevent them from implementing something. And therefore I argued back then that if we were to, to evaluate the business, first of all, we need to understand that even to this day, let alone in 2012, there's no such thing as a 100% sustainable and responsible business. There's many companies that are trying to get there, experimenting on how to get there, but certainly haven't reached that level yet. So the point I was trying to make in 2012 is that you need to evaluate the momentum, the trajectory. Are they on the right path? Other than looking at some inconsistencies as betrayal or hypocrisy. Now, the world is um, as you pointed out, has traveled a lot of distance since 2012. Now, I would dare say that we see change all around us. We see change in individual behavior. We see change in uh, corporate behavior. We see change in even institutional behavior, right? Think about central banks, for instance, are paying attention to the climate issue. And of course, we see even the, the international institutions like World Bank, IMF, and so on and so forth, paying attention to these issues. So companies in a sense, um, have, are now more legitimate to engage on this transformational journey that sustainability requires. And that is why we've seen, in a sense, the distribution moving more to the right. In other words, more companies assuming more initiatives and so on. However, uh, and, and this is the, the, the plague of our times, I think, a lot of companies trying to, uh, are trying to, to, to find a shortcut. They're trying to cheat their way to responsibility. And that applies to companies that produce products and services. And that also applies to financial companies with attaching the ESG label, if you like, uh, on funds that are not really ESG and so on. So I think that um, although progress has been made um, uh, and a lot of good progress has been made, um, I'm very encouraged by the fact that uh, legislators and, and regulators are looking at ways to diminish greenwashing. Uh, But for me, there is a silver lining there, Chris, because I think that why would you greenwash if you don't feel a serious pressure to do something? You're making the wrong choice by cheating. But for me, that's slightly better than being entirely indifferent. Because if you are indifferent, that means you feel no pressure to do something. And that's not a good outcome. So it's better that you feel pressure. And and, and the last thing I'm going to mention is is that lest we forget that sometimes companies, get when they get a slap in the face they can and they do turn it around. 
For instance, look at Nike and the sweatshops in the 1990s and how that transformed the way Nike deals with its supply chain to now become one of the leaders in that space. Even recently, think about Dieselgate and Volkswagen. As my, uh, my friend Georg Kell, uh, the, the, the chairman of the sustainability board, uh, says, uh, it's how they were able to go from crisis management to change management. So in, in some ways, right, even when you cut corners, when you get caught, that could actually have in the long-term effects. But clearly, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's been, um, as always, uh, progress is not linear. There's one step forward, two steps backward sometimes. Uh, I do consider greenwashing to be one of those steps forward, but I'm also encouraged by the fact that uh, there is more accountability towards it, and not just by uh, governments, right? I think it's consumers can now detect greenwashing. Social movements and NGOs can see greenwashing. Investors are trying to eliminate greenwashing. Otherwise, they're investing in the wrong assets and so on. So I think the incentives are aligned uh, by various societal stakeholders to eliminate these uh, inefficiencies. And if I may ask, um, for, if you're writing that article now, yes. looking forward to 2032, <clears throat> yeah. what, what change would you make? Would you still be giving the benefit of the doubt or would you be, no, we need to be watching these guys a lot more closely? Yeah, having seen what I've seen in the last 10 years, I, I would still say that... Um, if we are to give the benefit of the doubt as outside observers, as consultants, as investors, we need to be systematic in our approach. In other words, we need to be able to more uh, deeply evaluate whether they are actually building a sustainable business model and whether they are headed in uh, a better way of doing business. And let me explain what I mean by that, because a lot of research has taken place since in the last 10 years. And now when we talk about a commitment to sustainability, um, I think we know exactly what we mean. So for instance, for me, sustainability has five or six important elements. Is the principle, the idea that you want to produce social and environmental value in synergy with financial value. The idea that it's a dual challenge, there's a global cost correction, is some of these elements are going to be cost of doing business, but there's also the ability to differentiate. But if you go the differentiation route, like every strategy, component number three means that you're going to face trade-offs and you will need to resolve them. And how do you do that? Another component of a sustainable business model is a systematic structured process of decision-making that converts these trade-offs into value creation mechanisms. Fifth element is structure. In other words, it can no longer be the crusade of the CEO or the top team. It has to be embedded in the organization. And of course, last but not least, leadership and trust and a change mindset. So in other words, I think in the last 10 years, we have developed the criteria that allow us to have a more careful look and therefore uh, uh, we know the areas, we know where we're going to, we have to be looking to see if we can give that benefit of the doubt. So in this case, for instance, if I see a company that uh, are doing major work on four of these dimensions and they are working on another two, then yes, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. But if I evaluate a company that says a lot and is behind on all of these dimensions, uh, then I would start raising doubts, mm -hmm. right? Although we need, the last thing I'm going to mention though, in this respect is that it's a difficult thing for the time being, due to not enough transparency, to distinguish between companies that commit, genuinely commit, and then fail because they are incompetent versus companies that commit only to lie about it. Uh, and that is why, for example, I think this um, 
idea about transition plans and more transparency for businesses is important because in, in my view, it makes a difference if a company can prove to you that they tried and failed as opposed to cheated their way. Uh, because from the outside, you might those two are observationally equivalent. You'll see both of them not doing enough. Uh, but there is benefit of the doubt for those that were simply lacking the capabilities or the knowledge or the skills, sometimes even the human capital to actually make the transition. Sure. I, sure. I think it might be a little harsh there. I think, like, there will be firms out there that aren't just incompetent, but are overambitious. Like, so you've got idealists in there who want to try and have perfection as their goal, and perfection is almost always impossible. So, yes. so you, you, you fail, but you've done a lot of good work, and you should yes. be commended for that. You know? Absolutely. There are overambitious companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen examples that I don't want to mean name, but I, know, I think we all know what we're talking about, that we have seen overambitious executives that went too far on the side of purpose and forgot how to be businessmen and women. 100%. Uh, so if overambitions, uh, ambition actually diminishes your business capability as a, as a leader, then that's also the other extreme. And, and you're right. There's also there, I think the benefit of the doubt is, is again on your capability to actually implement if you don't pay attention to, to, to the typical business consideration. So sustainability is not about... Um, uh, replacing what we knew about strategy is about complexifying and enhancing and, and, and making actually the underlying problem more difficult. Yeah. Well, as you said, this is, it's, this is an underlying problem that is difficult and it takes a lot of study. And uh, thankfully, over the last decade, you've been teaching a lot of people uh, how to think about these, uh, these various issues. Um, just again, continuing the kind of exploration of the last 10, 10 years in, in ESG for you. Um, have you seen your, your cohorts of students evolving over that 10-year period? And that is uh, one of the things that keeps me going because, uh, uh, you know, these days if you read about the science of climate change, if you, if you read the, the science of the planetary boundaries, it is easy to become a pessimistic and it is easy to get depressed sometimes. Um, and the progress that I have seen in our MBA students, but also across uh, our degree programs in the last 10, 13 years, it's been amazing. I think that now I enter a classroom and I don't, of course, I don't need to convince people about how important these issues are. Um, I don't need to uh, even, you know, highlight that, at least for some people, um, when they take on leadership roles, this uh, sort of quest for a self-purpose, right? For your own purpose in life, your own purpose in your career in terms of having a positive social impact. Um, I don't need to convince anyone about that. Uh, people come in ready to take action because they understand these issues. And that is very fundamental because that allows us to skip the part of just raising awareness and go down to the most important topics. How do I do this? How do I overcome the problems that are going to arise? How am I going to overcome the bottlenecks? So certainly on degree programs and as new generations of students have come in, you see that they are much more engaged, much more interested, and they come in with much more of the basic required knowledge of these issues and sometimes with even views about strong views about these issues in order to, how to resolve them. And I think we, we have seen a similar trend on the executive education side. I think we see a lot of senior executives around the world, um, first of all, interested in understanding what is the state of the art when it comes to sustainability or ESG integration. What do these new models, business models look like? What do I need to know to lead change? Um, and we've also seen it even online. You know, just before the, the pandemic, I was working on an online course for senior executives. Uh, it was called Sustainability Leadership and Corporate Responsibility. The idea that I wanted to have, let's say, 50 executives a year 
um, senior executives or board members to you know, develop the common language, create cohorts and cross-learning industries. And I was actually quite surprised because even from the first year, instead of one cohort of 50 participants a year, we are now at four cohorts a year with a minimum of 60. So imagine that that one six-week online course alone can impact 250 executives a year minimum. Uh, which told me, uh, as I was expecting, that the demand, there's the thirst for more knowledge, and I would say knowledge beyond the lot of fluff that exists out there about sustainability and the rosy picture that many paint about sustainability, there is really a real demand to see, sort of combine the hard realities of business with the necessity uh, of competitive adaptation, essentially, that sustainability creates. So, short answer is across the board, uh, degree programs, executive education, and, and uh, you know, students more generally, there's de definitely been a, a, a huge shift in the attitudes, the mindsets, understanding, awareness, and willingness to act on these issues. Yeah, that's, that, that's fantastic to hear. But we're talking at, at a very particular level, like kind of your boardroom level and MBA level, which is a very, a very particular thing for a very particular group of people. Um, I know London Business School here obviously does fantastic works in terms of scholarships and uh, trying, trying to um, increase equality. But how, to, how would someone like yourself see um, getting the message to beyond that, that pretty limited group? Yeah. yeah? yeah. That's a very important question, and I think that there is a very important role for education more broadly, not only business education. Because if you think about it, um, you know, many people don't go to business school to learn about the science of climate change. One would expect that in earlier stage of the education system, you should be learning about these issues. Um, you don't go to business school to learn about the biodiversity. Uh, yes, you might learn, you know, what's the latest about measuring it, how do you incorporate it into the business model, but the very scientific knowledge about biodiversity, you should know by then in some ways, right? So I think this is a more of a problem of educational policy uh, than anything else. Um, and sadly and tragically, even some of those issues have been contested sometimes. Think about, for example, in the United States, how contested these issues are. There are people that don't want to teach the theory of evolution, for instance. If you don't believe that, how on earth would you believe climate change, for example? So education is, in some ways, a political battleground, unfortunately. Um, but if I were to speak about business school education, in fact, I'm very encouraged because now we've seen some of the world's major business schools, including LBS, offering fellowships, scholarships, uh, and, and I believe Harvard Business School recently said that, you know, um, they would cover the tuition cost for people below a certain income if they are admitted. So I do think that over time, business schools have become, have become more open and more inclusive in that respect. Uh, because talent can be anywhere, right? It doesn't only have to be in, in business education. So I think that we have made, again, important steps in that way. Um, and here's the other thing that I want to highlight, though, because um, this issue does come off. The challenger we're facing has a time limit on it. We know that science tells us, for instance, that, you know, we need to half our emissions by 2030 and be to net zero in 2050. We want to stay within the 1.5 or 2 degrees, Right. What does that mean? It means that in some ways we need to prioritize. And if you think about it, the world's, let's say, top 1,000 companies 
right? They control a lot or through them passes a lot of the world economic activity. So in some ways, again, not to neglect SMEs or, or, or other backgrounds, but given the time limits, if we wanted to affect, let's say, 85% of the OECD GDP, it's in some ways it's easier to focus on a thousand com- public companies than focus on four billion people to change their behavior. You see, and I mean, in an ideal world, we should be doing both, right? Uh, but given the time limits that we have on this, we we I think that we can leverage the scale and reach of large organizations in order to facilitate these programs. And that's where MBA education links in, right? That's why I think that if we're trained with all its drawbacks and limitations, MBAs uh, uh, to become these captains of industry that are going to run these big organizations, then we can work on the time limit. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, it's, it's a matter of priorities and clearly uh, harvesting talent wherever it exists without uh, excluding anyone because of sometimes high fees and so on is, should also be on the agenda. Well, that leads us very neatly on to the next kind of uh, kind of big topic trying to cover, which is uh, corporate f- performance and sustainability. Yes, uh, we've seen um, you know perhaps driven by a groundswell of interest and almost inevitably driven by uh, very low cost of capital. Yeah. That uh, it's been very easy for people to be investing in in businesses and looking for reasons to be investing yes. in businesses, and perhaps one of the reasons that people can think, oh well, I'll, I'll make a sustainable investment because it makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's had so there's been um, an outperformance of uh, of, kind of socially responsible um, firms above yeah. above the markets now. Um, our first observation is that's kind of remarkable considering we haven't priced in externalities properly. Yes. Yeah. You know? Um how why do you think that is? Like yes. that that it's it's been there. And second question is, do you think it's sustainable? Yes. As as as, as economic conditions turn. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's a it's a complex question. So let me try to unpack that mm-hmm. a little bit because first of all, um we need to distinguish about what type of performance we're talking about. Because when people talk about ESG and sustainability, they refer to performance in the financial markets and of funds. And that's one type of performance. But of course, we have corporate performance. So we need to be clear about which performance we're talking about. Um, So let me start with the corporate performance, because, uh, of course, it's a big question of whether um, you can outperform if you are a business that integrates sustainability into the way you do business. In other words, is there a trade-off between sustainability and being profitable? So, first of all, we need to understand that um, half of the sustainability story is a global cost correction. It's the fact that it's time to pay the bill. So that question is not valid right for that part of the cost so for instance if you have profits today that you materialize because you have children in your supply chain if you have modern slavery in your supply chain if you materialized profits because you um you know you were part of deforestation efforts and so on and so forth then you're not and you should not be entitled to those profits that that so-called trade-off is fictitious it's the only the result that is now time to pay your bills because you have I mean, evidently, you have caused destruction in that process. And, there, and, and therefore, it's not, you're not entitled to those profits. That's why I'm a big fan of all these initiatives, including the impact-weighted accounts, for instance, at Harvard Business School that's led by um, uh, Ronnie Cohen and, and George Serafim, the professor at HBS, that they try to integrate into the cost, the real costs in, of, of, of this production. So in that respect, there is no reason to ask about there is no valid reason to ask about a trade-off. And I think that the best of companies 
realize that the sooner I invest in eliminating inefficiency, in eliminating all these negative impacts, the, the better I'll be for when someone knocks on my door to pay the bill, maybe through a carbon tax, for instance. So that's the, the very important point, that half of the sustainability story is going to be about the global cost correction. So there's no trade-off there because you have to pay the costs that you're imposing on all of us. Now, the second part of sustainability is, of course, the upside, right? And there we see that changing customer preferences, for example, changing demands and expectations of businesses have created new business models. Think about Tesla, for example, and how it disrupted the automobile industry. Think about Beyond Food and Impossible Meats and how they disrupted the, the, the food industry. Think about how Oatly came in and disrupted natural milk. So in other words, the, the new market entry signifies to me that sustainability as a trend has created new market opportunities. And therefore, especially if you are a startup that is born sustainable and you don't have the organizational inertia and the challenge of transforming, you can take advantage of these opportunities and you can scale. And we have also seen this with groundbreaking business models like the circular economy, for instance, which is not about minimizing your negative impacts. As a circular economy model, a business model scales up, it scales up positive impacts. Right? So that is the second component on corporate performance. So you see that the first component, uh, to go back to your question, yes, assumes some um, pricing in of the negative externalities, which is already slowly uh, happening. And the forward-looking companies, you see, if they already bring you the bill, it's too late. That is why companies have, for example, an internal price of carbon that sometimes is much higher than the markets, for example, because they have foresight. Isn't that the whole idea of running a business, right? So in that respect, uh, I, I think the, 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 uh, there's no incompatibility between profitability and, and, and our performance. And there's therefore, as a matter of fact, the more we price this in, the better prepared those companies are going to be. So that is when it comes to the corporate performance. And I'll address the second uh, big question mark, which is about um, outperformance in the financial markets and if it's sustainable. Um, and I'm always surprised because I think that, uh, not you obviously, but when people attack ESG and ESG integration in the markets, it seems that sometimes they're forgetting their basic finance courses. I'm not even a finance person, right? And I know the following. Look, if a company invests in innovation and it becomes an innovative company, of course it will outperform at the corporate level, right? But of course, if the markets learn that you're Apple and you're an innovative company, they will price it into your share price. So yes, in the case of Apple, you can say you cannot outperform because everyone knows that Apple is innovative. That doesn't mean that Apple should stop being innovative or not investing in R&D and innovation. But in ESG, we almost say that, right? Because if the markets know that you are a responsible business, then the critics say you shouldn't do it because it doesn't lead to alpha. What sort of logic is that? that you see the double standards in sustainability because it's not just sustainability, right? Anything that the market prices into, is, going to, is able to price into, is reflected on price. That doesn't mean that at the corporate level we should stop doing it. So why would you expect uh, a consistent alpha on sustainability if indeed markets can accurately evaluate in the same way that they do in innovation, who is ESG? And here comes the big question mark. Can they? 
And the answer is, of course not. Of course they cannot. Of course they can. That's what maintains the alpha. Because there is, of course, the big problems of ESG data, comparability, accuracy, trustworthiness. And on top of that, what we're not realizing is that there's a huge um, uh, a step between having a set of sustainable companies and building a portfolio to invest in. Because then there's the selection issue. What's your investment thesis, right? Are you investing best in class? Are you doing positive screening? Are you doing negative screening? What exactly is it that, you, how are you selecting? And on top of that, we're forgetting that there are traditional investment strategies, right? There's value investing, there's growth investing, there's emerging markets, there's venture capital. So to just say that, you know, ESG doesn't produce alpha is such a simplistic understanding of this that, by the way, we don't apply to any other type of investment, right? So on the financial performance, outperformance on the financial markets, I think the jury is still out because, well, think about it. Uh, we don't have accurate data in order to make that selection. Even if we were to make that selection accurately, there's all these different types of strategies and even more that investors are still exploring because these are new issues, right? And on top of that, let's be honest, when was the, the last uh, time that you've heard about basic finance theory and fundamentals rethinking everything in order to integrate environmental and social issues? It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. So if we don't have the theory of, of how uh, finance theory updated, and you know, I'm pretty sure that many colleagues in finance are working on this. Uh, maybe they have already. I haven't seen it. But uh, like a new theory of finance. But if we don't get to those fundamentals, how we price assets, for instance, by accounting for these risks, you know, we are very far off. I was reading recently that to give you the gap, right, that... Uh, that they were facing, even um, uh, Professor Nordhaus that got the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on climate, right? Apparently, in some of his models, he kind of estimates that the optimal sort of degree of climate change is four degrees Celsius. That's incompatible with science, right? Or if you see some of the assumptions that are made, is that there are some very strong assumptions in those, those models that a a big chunk of the economy is not going to be affected by climate change. So, I mean, they are good attempts. I mean, that's why I got the Nobel Prize, right? And, and if you are the only one doing it, that's a huge importance. But I'm just highlighting that, right? Um, you know, the numbers don't matter, but what matters is to, to understand the gap between where we are theoretically in our understanding and in our models versus where reality is these days. Um, so it's a, it's a long answer, but this idea about performance, it, it, we, you have to get the more, you have to be more nuanced in order to understand what are we looking for here? Because nobody is asking, you know, is innovation a good strategy that leads to outperformance? Like at the corporate level, it's, it's obviously yes, right? And, and if you ask at the, at the fund level, well, the answer is it depends on how you select innovative companies. It's the same thing. It's nothing, I mean, it's just more difficult issues. Um, well, when I was in business school, um, the, the value that the markets put on companies was seen as gospel. It was, yeah. it was, it was, it was unshakable. Yeah. This is like 10, 11 years ago. Now I think we've, we've, we've gone beyond and we've like, you no longer, the, the, the level of belief is far diminished. And yes. you know, I, personally, I think that there's a very strong um, case to be made for ESG, as, as you uh, talk about it, to be part of an integrated part of the strategy, which gives you a proper value for the terminal value of the company. Because yes. if, if you're just continually looking for quarter after quarter after quarter growth, yeah. well, how can you possibly be thinking this is going to be, this is, this is a long-term sustainable business, yeah. it'll all collapse in a heap at some point yeah. because you, yeah. ne you never plan for the future. 
But with ESG sustainability goals in there, you can actually have something um, that might just re- reignite belief yeah. in the in the system. I think in the world today, there's a lot of kind of dissatisfaction um, towards the kind of you know the capital system. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of lot of staff, like a lot of kind of young people, feel disenfranchised. Um, but we're now looking at trying to reconstruct the economy. Yeah. We're trying to trying to re- reconstruct the way the way we do things on a more sustainable way. Yes. It'll take take massive massive amounts of, of investment and changes to the way we do life. If if plan- yeah. if, if if human life is going to continue to exist on the yeah. Planet. Um, do you think that that's that that kind of climate change and the the, the climate um, the, our reactions to climate emergency can in some way um, reconnect you know the young people to capitalism and the system that we're all kind of kind of living in and working in and working through? Yeah, I think that's a very important question in terms of. Uh, understanding the deficiencies of the system, understanding uh, who are the groups that the system has left behind, mm. uh, because it has left several groups behind, and that's why we see the rise of populism, uh, but also uh, that's why we see the rise of social movements, like in the US, Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, the Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, and, and the Greta Thunberg, and Fridays for the Future, and so on. So there are many different constituencies, if you like, that either are, have been economically left behind or feel uh, hugely um, unsatisfied with the level of action that we are taking in order to address these issues. So there's no, no question that all of these trends have translated into pressures for companies to adjust the way they do business. In other words, business as usual is no longer acceptable, right? So I think that all of these pressures, whether it's customers, investors, supply chains, civil society, regulators, and so on, are are demanding what I would say uh, is a new model of corporate leadership. Now, if we were to think about the capitalist system, the truth of the matter is that at this point in time, at least, we don't have an alternative. So what we are trying to do, essentially, is work within the system in order to self-correct. Right, Because if the capitalist system was just this perfect system, then we wouldn't have a climate change problem. We wouldn't have a biodiversity problem. We wouldn't have these uh, huge inequalities and social divisions. Now, in order to fix a system, though, there's many levels of change that needs to happen. And you highlighted some of them. So we need change in individual behavior, in lifestyles, for instance. Uh, we need change at the level of what companies are do- doing in, in financial markets, and that's going to be a big part of the equation. We need changes in terms of how institutions perceive these issues and how, what side of commitments and actions they take. And unfortunately, we have seen institutions failing. Right, and, and, and I'll give you just one example, two examples. Right, we've been discussing, for example, the uh, climate change in 26 and going on 27 COPs since 1995 in Berlin. And although the world has come together and has been discussing for 27 years, how much of uh, carbon emissions have we been able to reduce? Nothing. Right. So with what sort of credibility as a country or as an institution do you come out and say, you know, uh, you business or you per people should do this if they don't. The other thing we have seen is that, uh, give you a second example, think about uh, the uh, our joint commitments at the Paris Agreement. We said that the developed world was going to finance the developing world by $100 billion a year in order to transition. Um, how many years since the climate, uh, Paris Agreement have we been able to hit that target? 
Never. We never did. I, I was actually reading recently an article that was estimating that, in fact, the European Union, which we consider at the forefront of these issues, might have spent more money on fossil fuel projects since the invasion of Russia in Ukraine than they did since the Paris Agreement on developing countries. That is a bit depressing, right? But that creates a credibility problem. And as we know, you know, 100 billion is peanuts. The US military budget is $800 billion a year. Now, if you put the whole of the developed world together, uh, $100 billion should be nothing. But even that we're not doing. If there is that gap, how can we expect the world to come together if that such rather simple commitments we're not able to, to meet? And that also applies to you know, this big chapter called loss and damage that developed countries don't want to, to, to uh, even discuss because you know, it's the whole idea that historic carbon emissions are because of the developed world. The worst impacts of climate change are suffered by the developing world. Someone needs to pay for this. And of course, developed countries are not discussing this. Nor are we investing enough in the solutions. Think about the Sustainable Development Goals, the report that came out from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation this last week, which tracks progress, essentially said uh, that we're on track to achieve none of them by 2030. We are at a 2.5, according to the OECD, we are at $2.5 trillion under investment per year. And COVID, exactly because of its unequal um, and asymmetrical impact on developing countries, added another trillion to the gap. So we're talking about over $3 trillion uh, of underinvestment on a, an annual basis. So, of course, you need to change the capitalist system, but this is not only an economic problem. What I just described to you, all of these issues at the institutional level, in my view, they are inherently political issues. It takes political decision-making. It's not that we don't have this money, especially as a developed world. Of course we do. And it's not that we don't have some of these solutions. I mean, a lot of these innovations are there, the, uh, technical innovations, technological innovations that need to be scaled up. But it takes political decision and decision-making is political courage sometimes to do this. And I think that's what we're lacking. So no matter, I think, how we discuss changing business models and so on, and we should, and companies should take a lead whenever they can, um, companies alone are not going to solve the, the world's problems. I think we are, um, uh, for better or for worse, we are at a point in time where right now it's sort of all of the above and hope for the best. It's, it's individuals, it's companies, it's governments, it's institutions, all moving in one direction, including the political system. Mm. And well, that's actually quite an up, up, sort of, <laughs> based on, wh on where we were in that conversation. It was actually a very optimistic. End. Are you genuinely optimistic? That's like just sticking with corporates as the example. Yeah. That as as the the economic tide is turning a bit, that stress out executives might just go. Well, ESG is kind of like the marketing budget. Yeah. And and and, yeah. and 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 cut it as opposed to having it as the core core part of strategy. Yeah. Which is I don't needed. think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've I, I have uh, with uh, with a author of my mine, Caroline Flammer at Columbia. We have studied this. We have. Studied studied what companies did during the Great Recession of 07-09, because it was the same idea, right? Will companies now drop uh, investments in stakeholder relations, ESG, and so on, in order to survive? And what we did in that study, which was actually quite surprising, we, we looked at the issue for U.S. companies at the time, uh, and we said, look, as a company, you have a portfolio of resources. What are those resources? Uh, tangible assets human capital and intangible assets in which which we could break down into innovation capability and csr slash esg slash stakeholder relationships right and the question is how did they realign 
that portfolio during the crisis. And as you said, many people were expecting and they were telling us that, oh, the moment the crisis hits, they're going to cut the ESG budgets, right? Actually, that's not what happened. Um, companies followed this dual approach where on average, yes, they fired people and they stopped investments in tangible resources. But as a matter of fact, they continued their investments. In other words, they created liquidity out of firing people and stopping tangible assets. Um, they, they maintain investments into innovation capability and stakeholder relations and ESG. And it makes a lot of sense because, you know, you, as, as, as a famous economist said uh, once, you never let a good crisis go to waste. Crisis is a time where you can use it to lean the organization, but also to learn more about your employees, your customers, because that's, that's ex exactly where, when they need you, right? So the better relationships you have with your customers, for instance, the more quickly you can adjust your product portfolio. You can innovate in very particular directions and so on and so forth. And also, how do we build trust? If we want to talk about stakeholder trust, well, if you treat, if you abandon your stakeholders in the middle of the crisis, how do you expect them to react when in good times, right? They're not going to trust you anymore because in bad times, you drop them. And by the way, that is exactly why I think during COVID, we saw some of these large companies extending, you know, huge support in their supply chain, right? Because it's, it's when the going gets rough that you test these relationships. Um, and then they pay off. And actually, in this study, we showed that if we uh, once we exited the um, the crisis after '09, so if you look at uh, 2010, 2011, on average, companies that were able to either maintain or, in fact, increase their investments in innovation and, and sustainability and ESG, they were performing much better after the crisis. So, um, as, 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 as we framed that paper at the time, there's two ways to deal with the crisis. You can either save your way out, in other words, contract and entrench, or you can invest your way out of a crisis. And I think the best of companies invest their way, including investments in ESG and in, in, in building intangible assets, because we might not know how long the crisis will last or how, how, how deep it will be, but we'll know it will end. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and then you'll still have to be a competitive business at the end of that crisis. Mm -hmm. Well, I think I can hear your next um, <laughs> meeting of the board of AXS Investments. <laughs> you know, where, yeah. and so is, is that the message that you are trying to, you're, you're, sorry, just for the benefits of, of, our, of our viewers, um, you're a member of the advisory board of a significant uh, fund. And um, is that the thesis then that you'll be suggesting to them that we should be doubling down on on um, ESG heavy firms? Well, I think that uh, we should be doubling down on ESG firms anyway, uh, and I, for many reasons. I think this is uh, the, uh, this is the reason why I say that you know how are you going to deal with the current energy crisis? Well, you're going to have to double down on renewables, not cut them off and invest in, uh, for example, fossil fuel uh, infrastructure that's going to become. Uh, stranded assets 10, 20 years down the line, and on top of that, make your environmental impact more negative. I, I've always believed in, in doubling down on ESG because, you know, it, it, for two reasons. It's good business and good finance. Now, if you believe my thesis that companies are facing all of these pressures from, from customers, from suppliers, from employees, from governments, from investors, and so on, if they are facing those pressures, then it's a complete disruption. Like, how could you be a viable business if you do not integrate these issues? That's just good business, right? So I often tell to my, my MBA students, look, 
if you inherently or intrinsically don't care at all about any environmental and social issue, but you want to be a good manager and someone behind a veil of ignorance comes and tells you, look, I'm going to throw you into a company where customers are changing, investors are changing, regulation is changing, right? Um, your supply chains are under scrutiny, more uh, activists are, are knocking on your door. What would you do? Immediately, you would say, as a good manager, I will adapt to this. I need to, 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 to integrate those concerns into the business model, right? So ESG, if we consider ESG at the corporate level to be the uh, adaptation to this rapidly um, shifting competitive landscape, of course, you would double down. So that's good business. And then there's the good finance side. Climate change impacts are here with us, right? Whether we're talking about wildfires, whether we talk about uh, droughts or floods, they're here. So it's good finance because by accounting for these risks, I de-risk and I invest in, in, in less risky businesses. If I invest in businesses that have actually understood and they're dealing with these risks. And it's not just environmental issues, it's social issues as well, right? For example, the societies are demanding that companies pay attention to diversity, inclusion, inequality, uh, to reduce the pay gender cap, for instance, and so on. Uh, as an investor, of course I would want to double down on, on those companies because I know that they understand their risk and sometimes they foresee the risks before everyone else does. So it's, it's, I would only say double down knowing what I know from research about what companies do in periods of crisis, but also because I strongly believe that if done right, right, um, and this integration is not greenwashing, but it's actually competitive adaptation, it's both good business and it's good finance. So um, in the general investment world, there's been a trend towards kind of passive investments, like people just buying the market. Yes. Um, and that's growing and growing you know, exponentially as the, well, not quite exponentially, but growing significantly as years uh, go on. Yes. Is there an inherent conflict between the level of work and diligence needs to go in to understand all of the, the different levels of, of ESG yeah. um, and just, just buying a market? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I would say that the general consensus is that if you wanted to uh, cause change in corporate practices, uh, clearly passive investing is less effective than active investing. Yes, a lot of uh, asset managers and so on, they try to bring about their, you know, leverage their scale in order to, even though they might be uh, investing passively, they try to bring about their scale or mention their scale in order to impact practices. But truth of the matter is that that holds no teeth, right? It it holds no water. It's, It's not, you cannot bring about change. I would say that if we're talking about actual change, then certainly, um, uh, active investing and engagement and, and voting and sh- shareholder resolutions and so on um, are probably more effective in, in bringing about change in, mar- in, uh, in corporate practices. Okay, perfect, thank you. And that's also kind of leads us quite nicely on to the, the problem of greenwashing. We've, we've touched on it a little bit before. Um, greenwashing, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very broad concept that a lot of people got li- uh, different definitions yes. of. Could you perhaps explain what your definition of it, what might be, and and what kind of different shades of green there might exist? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there is the, the sort of uh, clean definition of greenwashing, which in my dictionary is an explicit intent to cheat, right? Um, to make a certain stakeholder believe that you're more responsible than you actually are. And you do that knowingly. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I would assume that with that standard, it's difficult to prove. And it is difficult to prove because in this domain, we don't have reporting standards. We don't have standards through which to audit 
companies' disclosures. Um, recently, here in the UK, the, the CMA came up with the Green Code, right? The Competition and Market Authority with the Green Code against which um, to, uh, to basically uh, um, force companies to have a code of conduct when it comes to their green claims. Um, so in that respect, I think that uh, if you move down from that rather you know, clear definition that I gave you, where there's an explicit intent to cheat, then things become more blurry because it goes back to the issue we were discussing earlier. You have to be able to show, for instance, that it was an intention, it was intentional because maybe it is lack of competence. Maybe it's incompetence. Maybe it's just bad luck and that led to failure. Maybe, you know, there's many reasons why on, on outside the business, we can see a gap between what a business says they would do and what they actually do. So I think for me, the, the most clear-cut intention that especially we need to target is those uh, cases where greenwashing is intentional and it becomes and deliberate. On the, the rest of the cases, though, I think there's huge scope to actually help companies. Ask the question, why are companies failing to transition? Why are they incompetent? Is it because they cannot change? Is it because we need to change the educational system to provide more skilled human capital to enable this transition? Is it because they're lacking the financial means to transition? Is it because they're uh, um, uh, facing internal cultural challenges uh, for transforming towards responsible business? Because in answering those questions, we also have a better understanding on how to move the entire system because these are the kinds of obstacles that don't allow the whole system to move in that direction. So I think we should go harsh on, uh, on, on greenwashing to make sure that companies are, you know, honest in their disclosures, uh, not only in their ultimate targets, right, but also in their transition plans. How are you going to get there? What is it that you commit? How are you, are you putting signposts? On the on meeting those targets, right? mm -hmm. so I am also a big fan of those regulations that say, you know, in addition to targets, you need to disclose your transition plans. Um, so I think that that that's what we should be doing on both fronts in order to deal with this apparent gap between what companies say and what they do. Okay, and how can um, a an interested observer, like you know, discerning, educated, you know, person who's looking at this, um, understand the difference between you know someone who's being genuine and someone who's who's greenwashing? What what type of signals? What's, yeah. what, what what should we look out for? That is uh, that is, uh, I, and as an investor particularly, right, but yeah. also as an any interested stakeholder, that that is the holy grail. That is the the big question marks here, and I think that. First of all, we need to abandon this idea that sustainability is only a reporting issue. ESG data, no matter how good it is, is not going to tell you the full story in the same way that when you do financial analysis, you still need to understand the quality of management, for instance, and you speak to management and you want to understand their strategy, their forward-looking plans, and so on. Um, so that's that's one way of evaluating this. But I do think that, uh, as I was mentioning to you earlier, if we try to uh, scrutinize what a company does in terms of what is the underlying principle? How do they understand the challenge between differentiating and cost of doing business? What are their decision-making processes? How systematic and how robust are they in terms of dealing with ESG, ESG challenges? Have they identified the right trade-offs, especially when it comes to material issues within their industry? To what extent they have embedded this for sustainability? Because we can ask, you know, let's check. Is it in the corporate governance? Is it in the incentives? Is it in their transparency practices, in their disclosure practices? What are they doing in their supply chain? 
And let's understand the role of leadership. How authentic is this leader? To what extent he or she was able to uh, instill this change mindset that is needed? In other words, we do have those, I would call, and as I was mentioning earlier, the, the five, six core elements against which, I mean, these elements, you know, have been looked at or they've been seen as different frameworks and so on and so forth, but fundamentally, that is what, in my view at least, what is a sustainable business model. So we need that, that set of criteria in order to understand, as you said. So we cannot make this inference only from the outside. We cannot make this inference even only on ESG data or only at the product level. You have to really go deep into the organization to understand the trajectory across all of these dimensions. Uh, changing tack slightly, um, we, you recommended a book recently called The, uh, the Age of um, uh, Anthropocene. Yes. Yeah. Um, really, really interesting read and really interesting kind of frame and way of looking at, uh, at you know, the, cur- the current world, world we live in. Could you give a little, a little kind of presse on, on why you recommended it and why you think it's a useful fra- frame of reference yeah, for us? Yeah, absolutely. I think mm. one of the main reasons why I did that was because mm. Um, ESG issues, the sustainability issues, unfortunately, are being, becoming increasingly politicized. And especially ESG, if you consider the United States is, bec- is coming, is being pushed at the center of the culture wars between Republicans and Democrats. So, um, in order to have a more, to build, I think, a common ground and a more fundamental understanding of why ESG or sustainability is important, I think that going back to the science is one way, potentially, through which this polarization and this gap could be bridged. And I always say to my students as well, you cannot possibly graduate from a business school and London business school, go out there, expect to run a business or build a business or even work for a business without understanding the basic scientific realities of where we stand today, what is the risk and why do so many people call it a crisis? So I use that book as a recommendation, but in general, highlighting scientific facts because I hope that for the majority of people, this can be a common ground. And also think about it. We often talk about the economics of ESG at the level of the corporate, but how could you possibly understand the economics of ESG without understanding the science of the underlying issues, right? Um, Now, if there was an equivalent uh, a body of knowledge as robust uh, on the more complex social issues, I would also recommend that. It's just that it does seem that on environmental issues or broadly planetary issues, we have a better scientific understanding, but we still need to do a lot of work to understand how we measure and how we deal with social complexities. And, you know, it's no accident that um, the European Union essentially has abandoned its efforts for a social taxonomy. It's just too difficult and too complex. Um, but that is the main reason. I think it's, it's uh, from, in my experience, teaching these topics from various different angles, from the economic side, from the corporate side, from the investment side, and so on. It seems to me that the scientific consensus uh, forms a very strong foundation to then build on and try to understand then how are these issues affecting the world of business or capitalism for that mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there is um, like an, an inherent conflict between capitalism and um, the planet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's like, for example, like if we, you know, we have children. Yes. Our children are not um, sustainable creatures up until they grow to a certain stage and yeah. then they're like you know, 18, you know, 19, out in the world, able to 
feed themselves, grow themselves, whatever else. Um, but that's that's. But they stop growing yeah. at that point. Yeah? yeah. If they kept on growing throughout, let's say, a hundred years of the lifespan, and could six foot, six foot, six foot, six, six foot, pretty soon, yeah, they'd be they'd be outside of all systems, all boundaries, everything they work at. Isn't there a natural cap on growth of businesses? Isn't there? Isn't there? So, and there's there's a conflict between because companies. Demand and shareholders demand continual growth. Yeah. But on the other hand, we've got a planet that demands people grow to a level and they stop. Or all organi- all organisms grow yes. to a level and they stop. Yes. Trees, everything. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a limits to growth argument, I think. Uh, and you're right. I mean, we, in a sense, we do live on a planet with finite resources and we are already wasting a lot of them when we are already overshooting, mm-hmm. right? even without you know, extrapolating on increasing population. And that is a systems issue, precisely. Um, and that's not only a matter of growth of businesses, it's, it's, it's in general a matter of growth. I don't think we have solved that puzzle yet. I do think there are some models that might give us an indication of how we could do this. So, for instance, the circular economy business model, the idea that the resources can be used and reused and reused into the unending cycle, for instance, that uh, helps you uh, uh, deal with the, uh, the issue of resource um, inefficiency. I do think, though, that we are far from hitting those limits. And I'll tell you why. Because I do think that up to now, the system has been very wasteful. We created, we continuously create a lot of waste and a lot of our processes and structures are hugely inefficient. So I think that there is a huge amount of optimization that can happen. And that's where new technologies meet sustainability. There's a lot of new, uh, a lot of optimization that can happen in order to allow us to still grow in, and, and, and ultimately bring more people out of extreme poverty, for instance, and, and contribute to human development. And we have seen examples of that. Think about for example, Google's AI, right? When they thought that all of their data centers were as efficient as they could be, as energy efficient as they could be, then they fed the problem to the AI and actually the AI said, actually, we can actually improve by another 40% if I recall the numbers correctly. Uh, because there are, you know, complex optimization problems that, that they're much better solved by machines than us. So, I understand that argument in the very long term, but in the short to medium term, I think even by simply optimizing and eliminating waste and inefficiency, we can certainly still grow. And I think we should, uh, you know, not undermine human ingenuity, especially when it comes to these business models that as they scale up, they have a positive impact. Because I mentioned the circular economy before, because the idea is that the bigger this, the, the larger, the more scalable these uh, business models are, think about it. That means the more resources are being used and reused. So it's not just about eliminating a negative impact. It's about scaling up a positive impact. So I think that it is possible. Now, if you ask me, you know, in 300 years time or 200 years time, at some point we might hit those limits. But I don't think that right now we are at that stage. Okay, perfect. And could you give uh, just a couple of minutes on, on the circular economy for those who mightn't be, be, be familiar? Yeah, concept, the circular yeah? as opposed to the linear economy is this idea that we are able to build business models that not only recycle products and services, but are able to take them back um, in, in the, uh, from, for example, disassembling them, take back the resources and use them for the new generation of products. By the way, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation here in the UK is sort of the go-to place for the circular economy. And the idea is that you produce and you transport your goods and, and, uh, and your products through uh, using renewable energy, but you also use materials that are not harmful 
in your production processes, and that has implications about your pricing. So the idea being that, you know, let's say I sell, I want to produce and sell a piece of furniture. I no longer sell you a table and in, in the sense that I'm selling you the resources that I used in order to make this table, but rather um, I used some resources to make this table and I'm renting out to you those resources. And when you're done with the table, I am able to take it back, disassemble it, and use the same resources to produce the next generation of products. So th in that way, I reduce the extraction, and also I reduce the waste because I bring back the material. So that is, I think, the basic idea. And in, instead of the linear economy, which is essentially extract, produce, use, and then waste, essentially, or landfills, or burn, for instance. Mm -hmm. We touched upon um, the polarization of, like in, in various parts of the world, particularly yeah. the, the United States at the moment, of ESG. Um, but just one observation um, seems to be that there's, while there seems to be an increasing amount of uh, political rhetoric, um, anti-ESG uh, coming coming from the from the politicians, uh, there more traditionally right-leaning firms and you know, it's. Just volunteer Nike is perhaps one of those, considering yeah. considering you know, various various uh, past uh, things, are taking different actions. Uh, like they're 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 leaning into ESG and becoming and, yes. and really making it part part of their identity. Yes. Um, can, do, do you have any kind of a, a, a thought on why there's a disconnect between yes. you know the, between the corporates taking one step and yes. the and the politicians taking the other? Is it just Absolutely, the, the consumer base. Or? Yeah, I mean this is a a manifestation of a a, a, a bigger issue which is the culture wars in the U.S. I don't think it's only confined to ESG and woke versus anti-woke and so on. Because if you look, for example, the states that are attacking ESG, they're precisely the same states that as soon as the Supreme Court um, uh, reversed Roe v. Wade, they were the ones that triggered abortion bans. So it's an ideo ideological war. Um, and what I wanted to highlight is that I don't think there's two sides to this argument because the, e the so-called ESG side, in my view, is based, as we've been discussing today, on good business and good finance. And right? good science. However, the so-called anti-ESG or anti-woke movement is based on ideology, short-term political gain, sometimes underlying extremist ideologies, and corruption and protection of vested interests. There's a reason why these states are the ones that are, for example, mostly producing fossil fuels. There's a reason why a senator from West Virginia, when he was blocking Joe Biden's climate regulation, he was the, the, the senator from the state that was producing coal and managed to put, even in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, fossil fuel uh, uh, funds, subsidies, essentially. Now, so you see that um, this is, I consider this, and I hope this is, the last gasp of vested interests that, uh, uh, it's a, that precisely because ESG is effective in pushing us towards a more responsible, sustainable world that are so violently reacting. So I, so that is exactly why these are not, you know, the two sides of the same continuum. There is no, nothing extremist about doing good business and good finance, but there is a lot of there is a lot of extremism, right? Uh, in believing, in my view, that women cannot control their rights or that gay people cannot get married, for instance, right? Um, I think it's a manifestation of what we have seen before as the effort, for example, that was sponsored by the Koch brothers in the U.S. in the 90s and 2000s 
to, to create doubt about climate change and promote climate change denial. This is just another manifestation of that. Uh, part of the underlying polarization and part of the underlying exploitation, essentially, of essentially the categories that the system has left behind and therefore the emergence of populism that elects people like Ron DeSantis and others across the US. I think that that the anti-ESG side, unfortunately, is very well organized. The, the attorney generals of these states are colluding. The governors are colluding. They're blocking uh, 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 nominations by the Biden administration and so on and so forth. And they are able to communicate very well. Um, that is exactly why climate change denial has delayed us at least 30 to 40 years from actually taking action. The truth of the matter is that this time we cannot afford any delay. We are already delayed. So I'm hoping that um, the ESG world, the sustainability world, will actually get its act together and coordinate an equally forceful response. Um, and there's no gray zone because the elections in the US are in November. There's a fair chance that Republicans might be back in the majority, and there's a very good chance that in 2024, we're going to have a Republican president. If that wave continues, this is, uh, this is going to be absolutely detrimental for all of us and the planet as well. And what is quite spectacular, right, is that they are already harming their own people. We have a Wharton study, for instance, that shows that in places like Texas, because they kicked out the big banks because they so-called integrated ESG, what happened? They were left with smaller local banks that, of course, have higher costs. And now it's costing the state about 500 or so million dollars more, according to the estimates, to, to obtain capital because of those decisions. That tells you that it's bad business and it's bad finance. And at the end of the day, it harms the state, the people in the state, and the pensioners of the state. Mm -hmm. Right, um, but someone needs to tell this. Someone needs to believe in the truth of this. And if we are in the U.S., where there are two parallel universes in which half of the U.S. not half, but a certain amount of people in the U.S. still believes that Trump is president and that the election was stolen. Frankly, I, I don't know how you uh, bridge that gap and how you deal with that level of deep polarization. Yeah, no, enormously difficult, all right, absolutely. Um, I think some parts of the, the Inflation Reduction Act that you just, just mentioned, um, I think will be um, very successful and productive in embedding um, economic interests in yes. society. In, yes. in, 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 and once economic interests are built around renewables, around yes. actually vehicles, around whatever, it becomes very, they become their own pressure group. And no matter yes. where they are situated and what state, whether it's a blue or red state, those are going to be a, a, a segment of people that need to be protected and looked after. So, assuming that the Inflation Reduction Act survives the next couple of years and these things can be embedded, and there's no guarantee it will yes. if power changes hands. Yes. I think on it's 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 there's more more good than harm, you know, in my my view. But do you yeah. have a have a have a view on the inflation reduction? I think the jury's out because here's how I think about that. The original bill, the Build Back Better mm -hmm. bill, started with over three trillion dollars of an investment, and in order and through the political process and in order to pass, it has to be deflated by ten times, down to three hundred and seventy billion or so for the climate, right? Or these sort of initiatives now. What we need to understand is that the U.S. military budget, as I mentioned earlier, is 800 billion a year. This is 370 billion over 10 years. 
right? So that tells me, sadly, what our priorities are. Second of all, I think the jury is still out if this bill is going to be the best that we can do or only the beginning. Because this can tell us that the, the, the bill can tell us, look, we did the best in terms of negotiations and this is as good as it gets, which in my view is not good enough because we might have compromised 10 times, but climate change hasn't decelerated 10 times waiting for us to make a decision. So um, the other thing I would, I would highlight is also, it, it is historically a great step in the right direction. But in my utopian world, I, be, I would want to believe that this is only the beginning of more and more ambitious uh, bills because exactly what you described, because people are going to see the benefit of living a better life, a, a cleaner air, um, more and higher quality jobs and high, higher paid green jobs and so on and so forth. Uh, but, I, but only time will tell because, as you said, this, some of these provisions may be reversed. Even that bill has fossil fuel provisions. So we will see. Um, but that does highlight in my mind yet again that political compromise uh, is good on some issues, like economic cooperation, for instance, avoiding wars, but you cannot negotiate with science. Um, and I'm not sure that this political, this, the political system as it is today is fit for purpose to deal with issues that there are absolute answers. You know, you and I can negotiate what we think about gravity, but if I jump, there's no negotiation. It's going to happen. Right. And that's what it feels like for climate change as well. Yeah, we can find a compromise and make pledges. Uh, but, you know, nature is going to run its course no matter what we decide. The question is, will we be on this planet still when nature does run its course? And if you could make um, one regulation uh, to, to, to assist in the sustainability goal, you became president for a day. And yeah, your executive order, what would be your, uh, I wish I wish there was one regulation. I don't <laughs> think there is one. I think yeah. that uh, if I had a magic wand instead, I would bank everything on individual responsibility. Because I do think as these individuals, we have power. We have power because we choose the products and services that we buy. We have power because we choose the companies that we work for. We have power because we choose the social movements and activism that we could do. And above all, we have power because we vote. We vote the people that build institutions, that appoint ministers, that appoint people to these institutions. So if everyone realized on this planet that sustainability is not and the survival of us on this planet is not someone else's responsibility, but it is for everyone a very real responsibility, then we could make a lot of progress, I think, because with all of those dimensions that we can do on a daily basis, right, we can make a difference. So my magic one would bank a lot on individual responsibility in order to change everything else. And that kind of goes some way towards answering the next question, which was um, kind of taking us back from the very start where we mentioned like your your, your article 10 years ago, I was just quite positive on looking at yeah. um, at whether uh, corporate should be trusted or not. And then the article you wrote in August, which was institutions are a complete waste of time. Well, paraphrasing slightly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they <laughs> need to be yeah. reimagined. Yeah, yeah. Every, everything's broken. Yeah. What would they need to be reimagined? What would a reimagined system look like? The short answer to that is I don't know. But what I do know is that we need to have that conversation. 
I know some of the parameters. I do think that science should be at the center of these institutions, whereas now we sort of have science on an advisory role. We, you know, we take decisions and then we ask the scientists, is this okay or not, sort of thing, right? Uh, we do have the IPCC reports, but they're not as an institution in and of themselves. So I do think that these institutions need to be more inclusive. They need to take into account, and uh, not account, uh, be at the core of them. They should be scientific, they should be non-partisan. Sometimes they, they, they might be more localized rather than centralized. I don't know what the answer to that is. But overall, I think we need to have that discussion because we are not having that discussion. We assume that if we continue on the COPs, we're going to someday reduce carbon emissions. We assume that if the World Bank or the IMF keep talking about these things and slowly integrate them, we may or may not deal with climate change, for instance. And I think that we've got to a point where that's not good enough. Um, so I'm not an institutional expert, but I can see institutional failure. I can recognize institutional failure when I see it. And for me, these institutions of compromise are just simply, as I said earlier, they're good enough if we are negotiating a peace deal, if we're negotiating, you know, how we're going to trade and what the taxes are going to be. Um, but I, we have to reverse the process. We have to take as a given what we need to do and then find a way to do it, not discuss if we're going to do it. Right. So I think those are some sort of the parameters or design principles, if you like, of how I envision these institutions uh, uh, coming about. And just one final question. Normally ask kind of like a, a similar enough uh, question of uh, interviewees. And that's, could, what advice would you give for somebody who's just starting out their management journey yes. right now? Several pieces of advice. I would say, first, make sure that you understand the underlying science and the urgency of the environmental issues and develop a thorough understanding of the social associated social issues that the crisis creates. That is fundamental. Second of all, understand that sustainability is not someone else's problem. Whether you are a manager, an executive, a board member, a voting member of the public, a citizen, it is your problem. And you have a choice because now you know. There is no excuse. I don't know what climate change You ought to know, in my view. But now, you know, I would say that the majority of people know. And you need to understand that this is a personal responsibility. I, I can hardly think of any decision that we take, even in our daily lives, that doesn't entail some sort of a sustainability, environmental or social aspect. So my advice is, first of all, understand the issues. Second of all, assume responsibility. And, you know, if I could preach, which I don't preach, I learn to, you know, give the tools. The choice belongs to people. But if I were to preach, it's like I would say take action now. Um, whatever you can do, whether it's about leading a team, leading an organization, uh, leading by example, setting your own more sustainable lifestyles, for instance, take action and take action now. Perfect. Fantastic way to finish up. And right when my voice is... Right when your voice is just good, yeah. Brilliant, Chris. Thank you so much. fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels. And we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. This series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.